give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses. To reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for granting it to us. Thank you for preserving it through the ages that we might have it. Here this morning, it's been read in a common language that 
We understand, but we come to you, Lord, asking you to grant us more than physical understanding and hearing, not earthly hearing and understanding, but Lord, would you grant to us spiritual hearing and understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. By your spirit working in our hearts, would you teach us and train us and correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Make us more like Jesus. Lord, fit us for service in his kingdom. And Father, help us in our time of need. Help me, your servant, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 1994, a group of house church Christians in the Tinga region of China, known as the China Gospel Fellowship, they began collecting donations for a special mission trip. Now, most of the group's members lived in poverty, so their giving was purely sacrificial. They sold chickens. They sold plots of their land, and some men even gave up money that they had been saving for their bride price, money necessary for their marriage. Whatever the cost, the supreme desire, as heard in their testimonies, was for God to be glorified in their nation, for God to be glorified in China. When enough funds had been raised, the fellowship held this large worship service where they commissioned 70 young evangelists. They commissioned them to go out two by two and to preach the gospel in the far western provinces of China. Now, these missionaries were young and they were mostly single. Most of them really were in their teens. And they were given only enough money for a one-way journey. They were given enough money to get there. But then they were told to trust God to provide for their needs. And he did. God most certainly provided. Six months later, all of them returned safely home. Every single one of them. And they had established new churches, new house churches in 22 of China's 30 provinces. The evangelistic zeal of the China Gospel Fellowship didn't end there, though. It didn't end there. It joined a still-growing movement of Christian zeal that burns across that nation to this very day. And just as such zeal didn't end there with that trip, it most certainly didn't start there either. For the mantle that these believers took up is one that has been passed down to bands of believers over time. Ever since Jesus himself, the ultimate missionary torchbearer, sent out his apostles and sent out his disciples and later even called them, sending them out to continue his great commission, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of every nation. This morning, here at the beginning of Luke 10, we find an account of some of Jesus' first such 
missionaries. And from this account, I believe that we're giving, uh, sorry, we're given guiding principles, guiding principles that are meant to help us as a church, biblical principles to help us, those of us who seek to share our lives and share the gospel with others, whether that be across the room, across the street, or even all the way across the globe. And because all of us, myself included, because we are all prone to forget and perhaps maybe even neglect the importance of that calling. It's my hope that when we reach the end of this time this morning, we're going to be more equipped to fulfill the vision that Jesus has given to us as individuals and as a church. So to help us reach that end, I'd like us to study the passage before us in the following way. So first, we'll consider the passage's context and substance. Second, we'll uncover these five biblical guiding principles for us as individuals and as a church. And third, we'll encounter two urgent responses that are necessary to faithfully fulfill Jesus's missionary call. So I know many of you like to take notes, and so I'll repeat those and simplify them for you. First, we'll look at context and substance. Context and substance. Second, we'll look at guiding principles. Guiding principles. And third, we'll look at urgent responses. Urgent responses. So you'll likely remember that from before we took our break for Advent, when we were last in the book of Luke, that Jesus has, and you can look there and see it's recorded in verse 9, uh, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the turning point in the gospel according to Luke. Jesus has a resolute faith. He's now turning his sights to the cross of Calvary. He's turning his sights to that purpose for which his father had sent him, which was to offer himself as a sacrifice for his people, to be both the great high priest as well as the sacrifice itself. You'll also remember that the account before us is not the first time that Jesus has sent people out in this way. You can look back to chapter 9, verse 1. We see Jesus sending the 12 apostles in much the same manner that we see here. Only now, in 10.1, Jesus is calling 72 others. And you look there, quote, sending them on ahead of him, two by two, sending them into every town and place where he himself was about Go. So there's lots of parallels even between this passage and the prior passage. So if you feel we're missing some details today, we covered some of those details the last time, but I will mention them briefly. The first thing I want to mention is that a lot of you probably noticed a footnote in your Bible, a footnote in your English translation uh, or other language translation next to the number 72. And some of you may even have uh, a translation that doesn't even say 72. It says 70. So this number and its accompanying ancient manuscript disagreements, which I won't get into here, but you can talk to me about them afterward if you would like, these have provided scholars with significant debate over time. I mean, scholars love to debate, right? So this is one of those things that they like to debate. 
Some insist that this number must be one of the two because they think it comes as a parallel to the end of the book of Genesis. You might remember when 70 members of Jacob's family went down to Egypt. So they see this, Luke uh, sharing this, is that just as the 12 apostles correspond to the 12 sons of Jacob, so these 70 thus correspond to those 70 who were establishing a new nation, those who went down to Egypt. Still others say that the number actually refers to the number of elders of Moses in Numbers 11. So that's a lot of use of the word number there, but... They say that it refers to that. Or some say this is a parallel to the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, uh, who was that leadership council that provided religious leadership for the Jews in Jesus' day. Or, there's many more, but I'll share with you one more. It's a reference to the prevailing number of Gentile nations that most people attributed to be in the world at that time. But whatever the case... And I don't have a definite answer. If you ask me to come down on this one, I'm not going to. I don't have a definite answer yet. I certainly don't want to miss the obvious thing. It's easy to get lost in all of this debate and all of this numerology and all of these parallels. It's fascinating. But you might miss the obvious thing. So what's the obvious thing? It tells us that the gospel work of Christian evangelism is not for the apostles only, but for other people, including you and I, who follow Jesus Christ as well. This account of the 72, which is, by the way, only recorded by Luke, this account reminds us that the same Lord Jesus who calls us to follow him, which is what we just heard at the end of chapter 9, the same one who calls us to follow him is the same one who calls us to go out and tell others about him as well. I think Philip Ryken in his commentary on Luke says it so wonderfully. I'll quote him briefly. He says, every cross-carrying disciple has a cross-proclaiming witness for Christ. Every cross-carrying disciple has a cross-proclaiming witness for Christ. Well, I mentioned it Earlier, And you'll also notice other parallels between this account and the earlier one in Luke 9. You'll notice again, they're told not to bring extra provisions. Uh, They are to be dependent upon the grace and the hospitality of others. Uh, They're not specifically told to cast out demons as the apostles were, though we know they come back reporting that. But we have Jesus telling him what he told the apostles to heal the sick. And notice they're to also go and pronounce gospel blessing, but they're also to declare gospel curse on those who reject the gospel message. You'll notice in this account that Jesus includes much more severe judgments. You can look at verses 12 through 16, and he declares uh, covenant judgments against those who would reject the kingdom. And all of that's a reminder, just as it was a reminder before, that When the gospel is proclaimed, a line is drawn in the sand. When the gospel is proclaimed, it's a point of decision. It's a point of action. It's a point of response. Maybe I should put it this way. 
When we draw that line, we're saying there is no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom of God. You're either for God or against God. Remember, Jews, when they came back into Israel from being in a Gentile nation, they would wipe the dust, right, off of their sandals before they, they didn't even want to bring in Gentile dirt into Israel. And that's the picture here. You're a curse. You're set apart. And as the apostles were declaring that to Israelites, they're also declaring it to people of Israel and others. These are gospel curses. You're either for God or against him. And those who are against God will bear severe judgment. Worse than Tyre and Sidon. Worse than Sodom. Also, I want you to note that like chapter 9, these disciples return with joy. In verse 17, it says they return with joy. They're astounded that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. And not only are they filled with joy, do you notice how Jesus responds? He's filled with joy too. Jesus is filled with joy. Why? Because he knows this is all part of God's plan. He saw Satan fall from heaven, right? He sees the powers of darkness being defeated over and over again. He knows that this is the end. He knows that that, that Satan will not win. And so Jesus is full of joy because this is God's plan. This is God's plan to spread the gospel through those whom he has called and sent. Jesus uses his church, he uses his people to go out and proclaim. He knows that for people's eyes to be open to the truth, it takes the work of God through his people. I mean, look at verses 21 and 24 again. Jesus makes it clear. Obedience and faith come from God. They come from God. Eyes to see and ears to hear are not for everyone. Not everyone will respond. Only those whom he chooses to grant it. And that gives Jesus joy. Why? Because he knows that the mission is certain. He knows that it will be accomplished. And he rejoices to know that his work will continue. Even through us. Even through us. That's amazing to think about. Well, I told you it would be a brief account, and it was. That's a brief account of the context and the substance of this passage. So let's move on now to our second point. These five guiding biblical principles that I think we can pull from this passage. The first one is this, if you're taking notes. God is sovereign over missions. Period. God is sovereign over missions. Now, for the rest of this morning, when I use the word missions, I'm going to use it in the broadest sense of the term. I'm not talking just about global missions. I'm not talking about uh, what I and others who come with me do when we go over to Africa and preach and teach. I'm talking about missions as a witness. All of us are witnesses of the glory of God. We're talking about the basic proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
to those we come into contact with. Do we understand? Don't turn me off or tune me out because you think, oh, that's just for those foreign missionaries. This is for everyone. God is sovereign over missions. This comes primarily from verse 2, where Jesus refers, and I quote, the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest, and also from his words about those who believe in verses 21 through 24. But also notice that in verse 2, Jesus also says this. He says, the harvest is ripe. The harvest is plentiful. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say the potential harvest is plentiful, does he? No. He doesn't say the condition for harvest is plentiful, does he? No. He doesn't present himself. He doesn't present God as a a farmer who sits nervously by wringing his hands while he checks the farmer's almanac and weather reports. No, he doesn't. He says the harvest is ripe. The harvest is plentiful. The fields are ready for harvest. How can Jesus say that? Because of divine election. That's how Jesus can say that. Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 tells us, among many things, that before the foundation of the world, the Father chose a people for himself in love. He predestined them, Paul says there, to be redeemed by Jesus, regenerated by the Spirit, and adopted as children. It's also why Jesus can say, like he does in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. No matter at what point in history you stand, we can be sure that God has a people for himself there. Wherever you are, In history, at any time, God has a people for himself. It is his harvest, and he is the Lord of his harvest. God governs every bit of the harvest, from the boundaries of the people where they will live. He he governs the, the people in those boundaries who belong to him, to even when and exactly how those people will hear the gospel message in order to respond. God is in absolute control of absolutely every bit of his harvest. If he is not sovereign over any part of it, then he is not sovereign at all. He is indeed the Lord of the harvest. So that's the first principle for all of us, is that God is sovereign over missions. The second principle is this. Prayer is the fuel, the gas, the catalyst, maybe you would say, of missions. Jesus says in verse 2 that the harvest is plentiful, but what? The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
I hope it's not lost on you how wonderful that verse is. It's his harvest. He can send out laborers whenever he wants. He certainly knows that it needs more laborers. Yet, what is his great and grand plan to send more laborers into the harvest? To pray. To ask us to pray that he would raise up more and send them. It's the great and mysterious cooperation that God enters into with his people. He chooses to use our prayers to accomplish his ends. That's fascinating, and it should be fascinating to us. Your prayers are not in vain. God uses, he ordains your prayers to accomplish his purposes. That should give us hope. It should give us joy. What it shouldn't do is what often happens in the church. Well, God's sovereign over missions, so I'll just sit back and watch. I'll just sit back and wait. How many churches who believe that first principle have grown into a cold church? They call them the frozen chosen, right? How many of them have grown cold in their missionary zeal? You know where it happens the most? In churches that aren't suffering. In countries and among peoples who aren't suffering. That's where zeal grows cold. I'm reminded of a story that Hudson Taylor once told. He says that he was at a, a place, he was speaking, and he was approached by a school teacher from Scotland who only had one leg. And he came to him and said, I want to be a missionary with you in China. I'm offering myself to go with you. And Dr. Taylor was trying to be kind. He was trying to be nice to this man, and he said, I mean, with only one leg, well, why would you want to go all the way to China? You know what his answer was? Because I don't see anyone with two legs offering to go. So I'll go. Here am I, send me. He was accepted on the spot. And he was sent to go. I mean, without a doubt, the need is great. I don't need to give you stats. You know that the need for the gospel is great. Whether it's in our own communities or even to the farthest unreached places of the globe, we can all agree that the need is great. I'll put it in math terms as one commentator did. The plenty of the harvest is inversely proportional to the number of harvesters. But the answer to meeting that need, believe it or not, it doesn't begin with greater recruiting tactics or better training courses. I mean, don't get me wrong, those are needed. <laughs> we need that. But the real answer, the beginning of the answer is found first and foremost right here. It's found in the people of God individually and corporately crying out to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into that harvest. This should be a repeated daily, multiple times daily prayer for each and every follower of Jesus. It is in this entire passage, right? It is the great command for us to pray. And so we should pray, but I don't want to give away part of the third point. So the third principle is this from this text. Missions is not safe. 
air quotes, okay? Missions is not safe. Look what Jesus says in verse 3. Look there. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. The reality is that no matter where the gospel is proclaimed, whether across the home or across the world, anywhere in between, those who proclaim it are vulnerable to attack. Spiritual enemies are waiting to tear them to pieces with angry words and violent assaults. I mean, any survey of Christian history shows this. From the earliest days of the apostles, even to our own, Christians are often mocked, they are scorned, they are shunned, they are beaten, they are abused. Yes, they are even martyred for their faith. I'm amazed to read about some of the first pioneers that went to the continent of Africa for missions, not in the earliest days of the church, but in the last few centuries. Did you realize that they packed all their belongings not in suitcases or crates? Do you know what they packed them in? Coffins. They packed their possessions in coffins. They figured they were never going to go home. So let's make the burial process easier. Let's pack our stuff in coffins. They left never expecting to go home. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. The Bible, and I certainly don't, ever advocate for foolishness, for foolish risk. But the Bible does make it clear that the calling of the Christian includes suffering with Christ. If you're waiting to share the gospel with others, whether that's locally or globally, if you're waiting until it is safe, then you might want to rethink what safety means to you. Not only are you as safe and secure as you could ever be as a child of God, but if for some reason you're wrapping your idea of safety into some kind of worldly concoction of healthy and wealthy, blessed and highly favored or something like that, you don't understand the spiritual war that we're in. And it is war. It's the same war that Jesus talks about in verses 18 and 19. It is a spiritual war. But Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And if he is for us, who can be against us? Missions is not safe. The fourth principle is this. Missions is a church effort. Missions is a community effort, we might say. By this, I mean that mission is for all of God's people, not just the professionals. Think about it. Who were these 70 or 72 people? Who were they? Do we know anything about them at all? Well, we know that they weren't the apostles. But Pastor, and how can you be sure of that? We'll just look at the word others in verse 1. He's already sent out the 12. Now he's sending out others. For all we know, these are lay people. Layman's a good last name. But these are real lay people in the church without office. They're not holding any place of prominence or, or whatever that we know of at least. Right? We can't be for sure, but we don't know. But what we do know is that they were members of the covenant community who had been sent out to share their lives in the gospel message with others in word and deed, to do it in love clarity and truth. 
I simply cannot emphasize how important this is. Each and every part of the body of Christ with its various gifts and callings, every part shares in this privilege. And it is a privilege. It doesn't mean that everyone is called to go somewhere else. Not every single person is called to get rid of everything and go somewhere to the other side of the world. But the point, it's also there in Matthew 28, is that every type of person Every type of person, all are called to go. All are called to go. And if not somewhere else, you've at least been called to go exactly where you are. You've been sent. Delegating this task to only pastors or evangelists or missionaries or church staff members misses the heart of the Great Commission altogether. So I like to do nerdy pastor things and read surveys and, you know, they're all over the map. It's really hard to get good statistics uh, for either your particular denomination or your, uh, maybe the Reformed Church broadly or the Evangelical Church even broader. It's really hard to get good stats. But one that seems to be pretty consistent over and over is that when people are asked why they decided to start coming to church or why uh, they became interested in the Christian faith, and of course we know ultimately God changes their hearts and gives them faith, but what was the catalyst that brought them there? Do you want to guess what percentage of people said, oh, it was the pastor? Very small. Very small percentage of people. As you add on officers or staff, it grows a little bit, but still generally less than 5%. There's a larger number of people who are seeking out church on their own, which is fascinating to me because most people aren't sharing their faith. But believe it or not, it was through a friend, a neighbor, a family member, the person who cut my hair, the person who serves me my coffee at the coffee shop every day. It comes through that. I'm not trying to work myself out of a, a calling here or, or get rid of all of our elders and deacons and wonderful staff members and other leaders in the church. What I'm saying is that this is a community effort. I think even the fact that they were sent out two by two says a lot about accountability and that this is a church effort, right? Sent by Jesus under his authority, not just some renegades out on their own, but then as the church continues under the authority of the church, this is, this is a church effort. This is a community effort. And so you're part of that, not only by yourself, but with each other. We're a covenant community here at the Granville Chapel. Encourage one another in this. Spur one another on in this. How about this be a question? Oh, I'm getting into application, sorry. How about this be a question? Who are you sharing the gospel with right now? Who are you sharing your life with? Let's pray and ask for God to show someone Okay, I skipped ahead to the third main point. Let me get to the fifth and final principle first. Missions is ultimately about the joy of gospel assurance, not gospel results. Missions is ultimately about the joy of gospel assurance, not gospel Results. Just look with me again at verse 20. Remember, they're all excited about the things that had happened. And what does Jesus tell them? Do not rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are written 
in heaven. Rejoice in the results alone. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus wants his followers to know that the greatest thing in which we rejoice is that we are counted among God's elect. To know and to be known by God is of far greater worth than any good that comes from our efforts to share the gospel with others. Furthermore, I would say those two things are inseparably connected. I mean, what happens when you step out to share the gospel with someone else? Well, I tend to do that a lot, and I'll tell you what happens most of the time. I get rejected, right? Oh, he's supposed to do that. He's a pastor. I'll listen to be nice, but most of the time people aren't going, oh, yes, please, let's pray. I believe. But I'm confronted with the reality that it's not up to me because I can't change their heart. And oh God, you need to change their heart. Please work in their lives. And then what happens? What's the third turn? God changed my heart. I was just like them. But God changed me and saved me. And when you are privileged, as I'm privileged, and I know many of you are privileged to do, whether it's our children, our family, people we know in the community, when we see them show the fruits of regeneration and profess faith, hopefully we don't then go, hey, look what I did. I had the right road. I had the right points, the right laws. I said it in the right way. I answered all their questions. Hopefully you don't do that. We go, praise God. Look what God did. Look what God did. And then how can we not then say, look what God did for me. He saved me. He changed my heart. You see, resting in God's sovereignty over missions should never make us arrogant. It should never make us proud. I would argue it should never make us complacent. Right? It should give us a, a quiet and ready submission to be obedient to him, to share his word, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to share our very lives with people as well as we tell them the truth about Jesus. So that way, no matter what happens, no matter what the results, Christ is honored. Christ is magnified. Christ is glorified. Not us, but him. So those are the five biblical guiding principles I think are clear from our text. With those in mind, let's go to this third, much briefer, and final point. These are our two urgent responses that rest on all of us who want to fulfill this missionary call. The first, I've kind of already talked about it, but I'll bring it back to you again. Pray. I think this is an urgent response. My prayer is that prayer lives would be changed this morning. That you would pray. That I would pray more. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest. Make it a part of your daily routine. Consider your compassion for others. Are you compassionate towards those who are outside the faith? If not, you need to ask God to increase that compassion. And you need to ask him to send laborers into his harvest. 
you should also be praying for your, your own opportunities. You know, some of you might be sitting there going, I, I need help. I need help. I don't really know how to share my faith with others. I'm pretty new to this. Or no one's ever sat down with me and showed me how to do that. Well, it begins not with asking someone for help. It begins with asking God for help. Say, God, help me. I need, I need this. And then God, show me who you want me to go talk to about that. Certainly, you can come to me or any of the elders or other leaders but you should be praying that God give you opportunities and God give you wisdom and help to do that. We need to pray and we need to pray urgently. The second and last urgent response I wrote down is to go. <laughs> go, stop talking about it and do it. I feel like I say that in my house a lot or it gets said to me, I, I don't know, but either way. Stop talking about it, stop planning for it, go and do it. So where has God called you to go? Is it just across the room, across the shop? Is it a, across the, the aisle? Is it across the street, across the globe? Where? Then go. And I have to bring this up because the last time I preached this text and talked about some of these principles, it was to like a missions conference, right? To a bunch of people thinking about global missions, and many of them are saying, well, I don't know if God's calling me to go somewhere. So I'll ask you what I asked them. Have you asked him? Or have you already made up your mind for all the reasons why you shouldn't? Have you sincerely stopped and said, Lord, is this to where you're calling me? Or are you calling me somewhere else? You must ask. You must. The harvest is indeed plentiful. So no matter where it is, here or there, to what part of the field is God calling you? The, the people of the China Gospel Fellowship answered that call, and they were motivated, if you remember me saying, motivated for a passion for God to be glorified in their land. So brothers and sisters, that is a motivation that we actually share with them. Our contexts are completely different. But we have a shared motivation. As we seek to make Christ known among the people of our homes, the people of our schools, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our communities, even all the peoples of the earth, I pray that those words that we heard earlier will never cease to be words that come forth from our hearts and lips. You can look there again. As your holy church goes forth in the Holy Spirit's power, with the glories of the gospel to proclaim. We pray your kingdom come and we pray your will be done for the honor and glory of your name. Let the nations be glad. Let the people rejoice for salvation belongs to our God, the one who is the Lord of the harvest. Amen and amen.